0: What you're about to listen to is the second part of a five part series about the Crimean War. If you haven't listened to part one, The Sick Man of Europe, you will have a difficult time following along, so I recommend that you do that. If you're good, on with the show. The year, 1854. The place, the Crimean Peninsula. Four armies from four empires join battle on the banks of the Alma River. None of them are ready, but some are less ready than others. I'm James Houser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 28, The Crimea Part 2, Four Armies on the Alma. Guys, we spent all last week laying the groundwork, and now this Crimean War thing is really about to pop off. We're going to meet four different armies, British, French, Ottoman, and Russian, and follow them to the green shores of the Crimean Peninsula, where they will fight the first battle between European great powers since Waterloo. This episode will end with a lot of blood on the Alma. So since I'm not a complete jerk, right? I'm going to give you guys a quick recap of what happened last week in that in episode in part one of the Crimea series. Now where were we? Oh uh, yeah, right. So Europe in the time of Queen Victoria was in an age of transformation. It was an age of government oppression, industrial revolution, steam power, romantic sentiment, reformist idealism and nationalist dreams. Europe had been mostly at peace since the downfall of Napoleon in 1815 but that ended with the crisis that led to the Crimean War. A religious dispute in Palestine somehow sparked a debate over the future of the Ottoman Empire, the sick man of Europe. Tsar Nicholas I of Russia wanted to invade and dismember the Ottoman Empire, but Britain and France wanted to keep it alive. When Russia occupied the Danubian principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia, aka modern Romania, the Ottomans declared war in October 1853. After a few rounds of land combat, the Russian Black Sea Fleet destroyed the Turkish Navy at Sinope in November. This led Queen Victoria's Britain and Emperor Napoleon III's France, pushed by the tides of public opinion, to declare war on Russia in order to rescue the Ottoman Empire and confront the Russian menace. This is exactly where we paused last week. Britain and France declaring war on Russia, drawing the battle lines for the conflict. The war had begun, British, French, and Ottomans versus the Russians, but it was not the Crimean War yet. So if you don't remember any of that, you might have missed an episode, so I advise you to check the feed. That is all the background for the war. We're getting into the real fighting today. So if you haven't, I'll give you the chance to go check that out. Three, two, one. All right, guys. We are on the march. If you didn't know, this is not just history, but military history, so there is some dark and bloody stuff going on. Some mentions today of sexual, ethnic, and religious violence, because it's war in the Balkans, and this just comes with the territory. The podcast remains PG-13, guys. Language is clean, the content is not. All my sources for the whole series will be posted on my website, so if you can fact-check me, feel free to do so. There are also maps so you can follow along, especially a very helpful map of the Crimea. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate, to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. What makes an army? What is an army made of at its core? So guys, usually, right, for my big series, I give all the fun little details about the separate armies in separate short rounds. You know, here are the armies of Culloden. Here's Hideyoshi's Samurai Army. But in this series, the Crimean War series, the nature and makeup of these armies isn't just a fun side detail. It is part of the story. Part of the story of how the Crimean War changed the world. How it was the first industrial war, the first mass media war, the first modern war. Because the way in which these soldiers react to war, in which societies react to their soldiers, changes dramatically as a result of the Crimean War. My theme for this series in general, the thing I'm going to hammer home throughout each episode with different individual themes, is that military history is not separate from all the other kinds of history. Political, economic, cultural, social, gender, you name it. All this stuff affects, and is affected by, military history. When I say I'm going to talk about the armies today, it might be reasonable to assume I'm talking about their weapons, their uniforms, their regiments, their tactics, and I will touch on all of that, but all of that is just what an army has, it's not what it is, because an army at its core is made of people, and people come from an economy, a society, and a culture that shapes the way they feel and think and behave, And in the course of the Crimean War, all this will change. The way these soldiers feel and think and behave, the way society and its armies interact will change. And that's why I'm laying the groundwork today. I'm talking about how these armies were when the Crimean War began. The four armies that went to war in the Crimea in 1854 were drastically different. And this didn't have a lot to do with their uniforms, regiments, or flags, the number of buttons on their coats, or how many steps they took per minute didn't even have that much to do with their weaponry, with one major exception, which we will cover today. But that's the kind of surface-level stuff you might get from documentaries or a lot of popular histories. These armies were different because of their uniforms, or their drill patterns, or just their weaponry. No, what made these soldiers different were the people. The soldiers came from different political systems, classes, economies, and societies. And this had a very real impact on their battlefield performance. So... What happens when armies built for peacetime go to war? When armies built to enforce the social order run into a storm of steel that doesn't care about your fancy title? When countries with a romantic view of the past produce armies that haven't fundamentally changed since their glory days? If every army plans to fight the last war, what happens when the last war was 40 years ago? And what happens when new technology runs into old tactics? We'll find out today, in the first great battle of the Crimean War... When four armies meet on the Alma. Today, we will continue the story of the Crimean War. We're going to see how Britain, France, and the Ottoman Empire joined forces to confront the Russians, how they got a chance to end the war, and how they didn't take it. We're going to look at four armies and what made them different, what made them strong, and more often, what made them weak and we will finally, finally, finally get to the Crimea itself in the first great confrontation at the Battle of the Alma. And I will tell you why it matters at the end of our story. Today is part two, and in part five, I will wrap it all up. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because this is an epic trek into the first modern war, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause, boil some eggs, help your friend move to his new apartment, do the thing you need to do. So tighten your collar, straighten your bearskin hat, heft your rifle on your shoulder, and for God's sake, guardsmen, stand up straight. Because we're going on campaign. Ellen Butler was a good wife. A young Englishwoman from Portsmouth, she met and fell for a charming Irish private from the 95th Regiment of Foot. Michael Butler was Catholic, and when he told his priest that he wanted to get married, Father Kelly was shocked that he would marry a heretic, an Anglican. When he asked what they planned to live on, they replied, love, which is nice and all, but doesn't pay the bills. But Father Kelly gave his consent, and Ellen Wateridge became Ellen Butler. Nell Butler is one of our protagonists, our army wife. She would go to the Crimea. All across Europe, troops were on the move. In the Balkans, Ottoman and Russian troops marched to the Danube. Troops from Ukraine and Siberia and Finland, Syria and Egypt and Tunisia. French troops marched from their garrison towns through the streets of Paris from their bases in Algeria and thousands of redcoats marched through the streets of London, Edinburgh, Leeds, Dublin, Portsmouth, on their way to set sail for the East to go fight the Russian menace. On February 28th, 1854, thousands of cheering, waving spectators gathered in London to see the guards march to their ships. They waved their hats and canes and sang God Save the Queen and Rule Britannia as the Scots Fusilier Guards paraded in front of Buckingham Palace with stiff red uniforms, tall black bearskins, and gleaming rifles. Queen Victoria herself was there to see them off. She later remarked, I shall never forget the touching, beautiful sight I witnessed this morning. But the scene was also marked by sorrow 40 women marched behind the guards the camp followers destined to follow their regiment to the crimea and dozens of other anxious women tried to push through the crowds to catch a glimpse of their husbands many of them carrying children for one last look at daddy only a few british army wives were allowed to accompany their husbands to war Nell Butler was one of them. She left Portsmouth with her husband's regiment on April 7, 1854, headed on the adventure that would change her life. The rest were left behind with no means of supporting themselves or their children. There was no system to take care of them, the army and the government couldn't give less of a crap. But the ones who did go to war, who did wind up on the Crimea, those like Nell Butler and Liz Evans and Fanny Duberley, who we'll all hear from today and throughout the series, well. Hard to tell who had it worse. And thousands of scenes like this happened across Europe and Africa and Asia. Tanya and Pavel saying goodbye to their son Ivan, hanging an orthodox icon around his neck. Dominique waving off her brother Marcel as he donned his blue uniform to go fight for their new emperor. And Nahir making her husband Karim promise to come back home to Cairo as he took up arms for the Caliph and Allah. By the end of today's episode, they will all wind up on the Crimea. So last week, we talked about the Ottoman Empire, Russia, France, and Britain, and how these countries got into war in the first place. So today, we're going to get them to the Crimea. And to start, let's talk strategy. See, when Britain and France declared war, Russia and the Ottoman Empire knew what their goals were. For Russia, their goal was to establish dominance over or maybe even destroy the Ottoman Empire. For the Ottomans, their goal was to survive. (laughs) New mission, stay alive. But for Britain and France, they declared war, and, and everyone's like, yeah, war. What now? <laughs> when the British and French generals and politicians sat down to hash this out, they realized that neither of them really had a plan. There was no strategy for this war. They didn't even know what they wanted out of it, their war aims. Okay, sure, protect the Ottoman Empire from Russia. But beyond that, nobody knew. The British government was split into dovish and hawkish factions. Lord Aberdeen, the conservative prime minister who never really wanted this war, wanted to restore the balance of power, stop the Russians, get them to go back to the status quo, no harm done. Limited war for limited goals. His rival was the liberal interventionist Lord Palmerston, home secretary, who wanted to literally disassemble the Russian empire like an eight-year-old with a Barbie doll. He wanted an independent Poland, an independent Caucasus, an independent Crimea, give Finland independence all of it he just wanted to take the empire apart total war for total victory and the rest of the cabinet looked at him and said dude listen to yourself that is bonkers but they didn't really come up with an alternative neither did the french say so, aside eh, we'll, we'll figure that out later <laughs> so with the allies basically taking a punt on their war aims the next question was how to fight the russians ideas bounced back and forth A land offensive into Ukraine, a naval campaign on the Black Sea coast, a blockade of St. Petersburg, or even an attack on St. Petersburg in the Baltic, and the idea of landing on the Crimean Peninsula and destroying the Russian naval base at Sevastopol. But at the moment, that was only one idea among many. So the campaign plan for 1854 was basically not a plan. The Royal Navy would try and blockade Russia's ports around the globe, which included a large battle fleet that sailed for the Baltic in April 1854, another campaign we will catch up on eventually. And the British and French both sent armies to Constantinople to fight the Russians. How? Where? Why? Eh, We'll figure that out. But guys, it would be another six months before the Allies had anything resembling a strategy, and almost a year before they even had any war aims. In the meantime, they pointed their militaries at the Russians and basically said, uh, go, go do something. Go fight those guys. As the Allies made their plans, or lack thereof, the Russians were on the move. They were debating their war aims and strategy as well. Tsar Nicholas I wanted to go all out, drive the Turks from Europe. Total war for total victory. He believed that if Russian forces crossed the Danube, the Christian populations in the Balkans, the Serbs, the Bulgarians, the Greeks, would rise up in support of their orthodox savior. Nicholas wanted to set off the fireworks of revolution and nationalism to make this happen. By kicking off a massive ethnic and religious conflict, the Ottoman Empire would finally collapse and Constantinople would once again be an orthodox city. And the war was already sliding in that direction. If it's a war in the Balkans at pretty much any point in history, ethnic and religious violence are a given and it is never pretty. When the Bulgarians launched a rebellion in late 1853, after the war began, the Ottoman armies responded. They burned churches, murdered Orthodox priests, and raped women to terrorize the population. On the other side of the Danube, the locals, the Romanians, resisted Russian occupation forging parties, and dozens of Romanian uprisings were hacked down by Cossack cavalry. I guess this is what liberating the Orthodox looks like to the Russian army. Local violence broke out on both sides of the Danube, as various groups divided by religion or language sought revenge for old hatreds, churches and mosques burned, and refugees fled. Gotta mention, guys, warfare in southeastern Europe is just kinda always like this. Something about the mixture of religion, ethnicity, political ideology, and weird terrain just does this. No idea why hasn't changed from Roman times to the 1990s. Y'all ever seen Chinatown with Jack Nicholson? Not not a tangent. Kind of a tangent. So I'm just going to say, forget it, Jake. It's the Balkans. Anyway. So the Tsar's foreign minister, Count Nesselrode, had had doubts about the whole ethnic-religious war strategy. He said, look, your majesty, we're playing with fire. If this gets out of control, that could spread to our house. Nesselrode also reminded the Tsar that a Slavic uprising would piss off Austria and maybe drive them into the arms of the Allies. But the Tsar ignored Nesselrode's warnings. It was time to destroy the Ottoman Empire before the Allies could seriously intervene. In March 1854, the Tsar ordered General Ivan Paskevich to take charge of the Russian armies in the Danube and go on the attack. Paskevich was a, was the Tsar's most reliable general. He'd been in a bunch of wars before. This guy has a really long career in history. So, Paskevich's Russian forces crossed the Danube on March 23rd, only a few days before the Joint Allied Declaration of War. They homed in on the strong Turkish fortress of Silistria in northern Bulgaria, and they opened their siege lines in front of the fortress on April 5th. But the Russians would never take Silistria the Tsar's grand dream of a crusade to overthrow the Ottoman Empire would fall apart in a matter of months. One of the reasons for this was that they had underestimated the Ottoman army. The Ottoman army was the army of Tanzimat. Tanzimat was the reform program that the empire pushed forward starting in the 1830s. Basically, medicine for the sick man of Europe. New policies, new laws, new ideas to try and keep the Ottoman Empire from falling apart. And one of the biggest focuses, obviously, was fixing the army. The old Ottoman Empire back in the day had relied on the Janissaries to provide its shock troops and regular units, but the Janissaries had become rebellious and corrupt, and they had been disbanded, violently, in 1826. The Ottoman Empire was trying to transition to a professional force modeled on other European armies. They were looking at the French, the Prussians, and saying, we want something like that. And this evolution was starting to work. The Ottoman Empire might be a sick man, but its military reforms had been more successful than anyone at the time or a lot of future historians ever gave them credit for. Now, this new army was very much a work in progress. Like all the other reforms, it was patchy. Some things had gotten better. There was a military academy, new uniforms, new training, new weapons but they were struggling uphill against the decayed bureaucracy, local and regional interests, and religious divides of the empire. The Ottomans were swimming against the historical tide. The core of the new Ottoman army was the Asakiri nizami Sahani, literally the imperial regulars, I'll just call them the Nizam troops, by far the best troops in the Ottoman army, but there just weren't that many of them, there weren't enough of them. One of the big problems in raising a large army to defend the empire was that the Ottoman empire was still poor and underdeveloped. It was not industrialized, its economy was stagnant, and modern armies are expensive. Primary and secondary education in the empire was almost entirely in the hands of the Muslim clergy. The empire's Christians and Jews were very well educated, but those aren't the most reliable demographics to put in your Muslim sultanate's army. (laughs) Hard to raise a modern army from a non-modern country. Another problem was the size and diversity of the empire. The sultans ruled a vast realm filled with many, many ethnic and religious groups. Your recruits might not speak Turkish. They might speak Arabic, Kurdish, Greek, uh, any number of things. They might not speak a language you recognize. The Ottoman army's units were just very uneven in quality. Troops from Southeast Europe or Turkey were usually reliable. Troops from Syria and Iraq were not. Some had modern weapons, some didn't some had good leaders, some were led by morons. Finding soldiers was one thing, because finding good officers was much harder. (laughs) The new military academy was still very rudimentary. Officer candidates were so uneducated that the first thing cadets learned was how to read and write. The Ottomans had European instructors, mostly French or Prussian, acknowledged as the best armies in Europe. And with their advice, they soon had a small cadre of trained officers, but not nearly enough. The upshot was that the Ottomans had big weaknesses at the command and organization level. Trained staff officers were very rare, admin and logistics were weak, training was haphazard or non-existent. One major boost was the presence of other European officers. Most of these were Polish, Hungarian, and Romanian rebels who had fled to the Ottoman Empire after their various revolutions. Some, like the Polish Michael Czakowsky, raised units of exiles to fight for the Sultan. But the biggest benefit these men brought was professional military training. Having a European staff officer was a major boon to Ottoman operations. They weren't smarter or braver or tougher than their Turkish counterparts. They just had the education that their comrades didn't. Almost every Ottoman army in the Crimean War had at least a few Europeans working at its headquarters and they were a major force in the modernization of the Ottoman army. So when the Crimean War broke out, the empire only fielded around 120,000 regular Nizami infantry, not nearly enough to fight Russia's 1 million plus size army. So out of desperation, the empire fell back on old sources of manpower. They called upon the provinces to send levies and you know, recruits to fight the holy war, Random grab bags of men assembled at the Danube from all over the empire. Tunisians, Egyptians, Arabs, Kurds, dozens of others. Some of them, like the Egyptians, were excellent fighters. The Egyptian regiments were just about as good as the Nizami infantry. But some of them were worthless. The most ruthless and least effective were the Bashi Bazooks, irregulars from Central Asia and Turkey who rolled up on horseback in groups of around 20 with swords, pirate pistols, big turbans, and spears. They had come to join the jihad at the call of the caliph, like their ancestors had for centuries. Family tradition, hunting, fishing, killing infidels, all the things we learn from dad. One of the oddest volunteers and most celebrated was Kara Kanum, aka the Virgin of Kurdistan, a female Kurdish chieftain who led 300 horsemen to Constantinople. Now, we do not know much about Kara Kanum. It's a lot of debate over when exactly she lived, died, and so forth. But one reporter said this about her. The queen or prophetess, for she is endowed with supernatural attributes, is a little dark old woman of about 60. She wears what seems to be intended for male attire and bestrides her steed like the warriors of her train. She is attended by two handmaidens, like herself, in masculine costume. Another English reporter described this diverse Ottoman army. The strangest figures swarm in from distant provinces to have a cut at the Muscovite. Turbans, lances, maces and battle-axes jostle each other in the narrow streets. But most of these guys were a disorganized rabble. The best troops by far, the ones who would carry the war for the Ottomans, were the regular Nizami line units and the Egyptian infantry, which made up the core of Omer Pasha's army on the Danube. And these were the troops that would prove to the Russian army that the sick man was not dead yet. So you see guys, the Ottoman army was a reflection of the empire. Diverse and fractured, poor and evolving, in the process of patchy reform. They were trying to... They were doing their best, and to be honest, the Turks would surprise everybody. By April 1854, General Ivan Paskevich had 50,000 troops confronting the Turkish fortress town of Silistria. The 18,000 mostly Egyptian and Albanian defenders were led by the Ottoman general Musa Pasha, while Omer Pasha, their main Ottoman commander, you might remember him, he was a former Christian turned Ottoman general, kept the bulk of his army a few miles away, ready to resist the Russian advance if the fortress fell. But Paskevich took his time getting the siege started and only opened his bombardment on May 16th after three weeks of skirmishing and digging. The Russian guns hammered the strong stone and mud defenses of the town, and the Ottomans stepped up. They resisted fiercely, shooting back, repelling one Russian attack after another. They repaired their defenses under the heavy shell fire, even as men were smashed and cut apart by the shrapnel whizzing around them. Everyone, the British observers and the Russian observers on their side, were astounded by the backbone of the Turks. They weren't supposed to defend this well. And as the Russians besieged Silistria, the Western Allies struck their first blow. On April 22, 1854, the combined British and French fleet arrived off of the seaport of Odessa and bombarded it for 11 hours. The shelling was nightmarish, wrecking the port facilities and killing dozens of civilians. When the Allies returned for a second bombardment, a British ship, the HMS Tiger, ran aground and was captured by Cossack cavalry. Its guns were carried into the city as war trophies. The Russians decried the attack on Odessa as a crime against humanity and Christianity since it had taken place on the Orthodox observance of Easter. And the Allies were being a little bit hypocritical in doing this. The bombardment of Odessa was about as bad, or close to, the bombardment of Sinope that they had called a massacre and an atrocity. But, you know, it's different when we do it, I guess. In the meantime, the Allied armies had arrived. The French had already arrived in Constantinople by April 1854, but the British had a longer way to go, from England to Gibraltar to Malta to the Bosporus. Nell Butler, like all the other army wives, was tossed around inside the hull of a leaky wooden ship for weeks, where the stench of rot and sweat and disease and human waste was almost paralyzing. It took weeks to get to the fresh air of Constantinople. Then, in May 1854, the Allies began to ship their troops up to the Bulgarian port of Varna, the new Allied base in the ba- in the Black Sea, where they could get ready to march north and relieve the siege of Silistria. As the British and French landed, the siege of Silistria reached a climax. The Russian guns had created a breach in the walls, and Paskevich ordered assaults to begin. The Tsar's infantry stormed the walls of Silistria in their tight columns, ascending the walls to fight hand-to-hand with bayonets and swords and rocks. The fighting was brutal, men from Egypt and Siberia tussling and shooting under the hot Bulgarian sun. A British observer reported that, Numbers of the townspeople went out and cut off the heads of the slain and brought them in as trophies. While we were sitting with Musa Pasha, a ruffian came out and threw at his feet a pair of ears. Another boasted to us that a Russian officer had begged him for mercy in the name of the prophet, but that he had drawn his knife and in cold blood had cut his throat. Most of these people doing this were the Bashi Bazooka regulars, but not all of them. Forget it, Jake. It's the Balkans. It seemed that the Russians were on the verge of capturing Silistria, especially when Musa Pasha was killed by artillery fire. After three months of siege, they were close. And then, on June 24th, they left. They turned around and recrossed the Danube. Huh? It wasn't the Turks that forced the Russians to retreat, or the British, or the French. The Western armies had done jack-all so far. But on June 3rd, the Austrians had given the Russians an ultimatum. They told the Tsar that unless he evacuated the Danubian principalities, they would enter the war and they would make him withdraw. And this was too much. Nicholas couldn't fight the Austrians and everyone else. So the Russians didn't just withdraw across the Danube. Throughout July and August 1854, the Tsar's army evacuated Moldavia and Wallachia. Omer Pasha's Ottoman forces harassed them the whole way out, including several sharp skirmishes. But by September 1854... The Russians were back within their own borders. 18 months after the crisis had really kicked off, Ottoman territorial integrity was restored. The Danubian principalities did not get through this transition unscathed. Both Ottoman and Russian forces committed a bunch of atrocities on their way in slash out. The Russians looted and burned their way through Valachian villages as vengeance for their resistance during the occupation. And Ottoman troops, mostly the undisciplined and murderous Bashi Bazooks, took out their anger on the Romanian Orthodox Christians. Thousands of refugees fled the principalities with the Russian armies, fearing the wrath of these Turkish irregulars who murdered men, women, and children in the name of jihad, but mostly loot. Jihad was an excuse. Forget it, Jake. It's the Balkans. Then, once the the Russians had left... The Austrians moved their army into the Danubian principalities. They did not declare war on Russia or the Ottomans, but made it clear they were putting themselves between the warring sides, like the like the teacher monitoring the cafeteria separating the two kids who are fighting. Something like a buffer zone, a DMZ. So for the remainder of the war, for the rest of the Crimean War, the Austrians would occupy and control the Danubian principalities, but with the clear implication that if necessary, they would fight Russia. Tsar Nicholas I was bitter that his dream, his destiny, had been denied by what he saw was the Austrian betrayal. He wrote to General Mikhail Gorchakov that, How sad and painful it is for me to retreat from the Danube after having made so many efforts and having lost so many brave souls without gain." Nicholas had saved the Austrian Emperor from the Hungarians in 1849, and this was how he was repaid. The Tsar turned the portrait of Franz Josef in his office to the wall and wrote scathing letters denouncing the Emperor's perfidy. But the Tsar had to face facts. Russia's holy mission had slipped from his grasp. His war had failed. And that was that. The Allies could have called it. They had gone to war to defend the Ottoman Empire, and the job was done. With Austria now placing pressure on the Tsar to make peace, it was a perfect opportunity to end the war, wrap this whole thing up, keep things from getting out of control, preserve the balance of power, and restore the concert of Europe. Both the British and French governments would have been totally cool with this. But both the British and the French governments had gone out of their way to rouse public support, spread propaganda, and generate war fever back home. They had gotten their citizens excited to justify the war. And now that they had whipped up that war fever, sent armies and fleets overseas, pumped up Russia as this enormous, terrifying menace that needed to be stopped, they couldn't back down now. They needed to win. They needed a victory to satisfy the people back home. Status quo was not good enough anymore. Phase one of the war was over. The Danube front was closed down and would not be reopened. From this point on, the Russians would be on the defensive, and the British, French, and Ottomans would be on the offensive. And with no better ideas, no overall strategy or plan or war aims, only the need to win something, somehow, their eyes settled on the Crimea, and Sevastopol. So now that we're finally about to go to the Crimea, I'm gonna take a pause short halt so we can talk about the other three armies of the crimean war the british french and russian this is the part that would normally go into a short round but it's so important it's going right here and then we're going to see how these armies perform in the first great battle of the crimean war the battle of the alma the british french and russian armies that marched to the crimea had one thing in common they were stuck in the era of the napoleonic wars The French looked back to Napoleon, the British and the Russians to their heroes that defeated him, and none of them had fought another equivalent European army since Waterloo. The lack of major wars meant that most of them felt little need to change. They were still refighting Waterloo or Borodino, figuring that what worked then would work now. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Well, problem is if you don't use it, you don't know whether it's broke or not. But this also goes back to that stuff I talked about last week, the world of the Victorian age, romanticism, nationalism, conservatism, the problems of class and the preservation of the social order. The armies didn't look to the future for new ways of war, they just relived their romantic past, their glory days. They looked to national heroes, not foreign developments, and they built their armies to maintain their social order rather than for military efficiency. The European armies of the 19th century were anti-revolutionary organizations built on fear of the lower classes. Most of the experience they'd had in recent years had not been in fighting other European armies, but in suppressing rebellions and revolutions. Change was bad. Order was good. This was why the armies of the Crimea of 1854 looked like they had emerged from a time capsule. Their minds were stuck in 1815. So first, the French. I'm going to get this out there right off the bat. The French were the best army on the Crimea. No contest. Not even close. They were the most professional, best organized, best supplied, best tactics. There was one really big reason. Algeria. From 1830 onwards, the French had been fighting a long imperial campaign in Algeria to conquer that country and add it to the French Empire. Most of the French army's units and leaders had rotated through Algeria at some point or another, and this gave the French an unmatched level of combat experience, even if it wasn't the same kind of combat they'd be seen on the Crimea. And this experience meant that the French support services were top-notch. They set the standard in the 19th century. The British were always jealous of how well-supplied, well-fed, and well-organized the French seemed to be. William Howard Russell, a reporter for the London Times, said the French had. Hospitals for the sick, bread and biscuit bakeries, wagon trains for carrying stores and baggage, every necessity and every comfort at hand the moment their ship came in. The French just had this logistics and organization thing down pat compared to everyone else in the Crimean War. Now, a lot of these innovations had come from Napoleon. Not Napoleon III, he didn't have an original military thought in his head. The OG Napoleon, Napoleon I, the big one. And in many ways, the French army of the Crimea was still Napoleon I's army. Their military traditions under their first and current emperor, and in their wars of empire overseas, made the French the army of empire. But it was also the army of the French Revolution, which had pretty much removed the nobility from the army's ranks. French officers almost all came from the middle classes, making them much more relatable to their soldiers than in most other armies, where the class hierarchy was much deeper. Their education was top-notch for the period, people forget, but for centuries of European history, the French set the standard for military education and professionalization. The French were just good at war, always had been, and everyone knew that. A key element of the French support chain came from its women. The famous vivandiers, or cantinières, were the women sutlers of the French army. They even had uniforms, a blue coat that they wore over a blouse and dress. I mentioned these ladies a couple weeks ago when I talked about the camp followers. It was the common opinion across Europe that they were just the cutest thing you'd ever see. Everyone thought they were hot. <laughs> Basically the TikTok stars of the Crimean War. The prettiest cantinières could even get away with basically highway robbery as far as prices were concerned. One Frenchman referred to, an old trooper's axiom, the quality of the wine is in inverse proportion to the beauty of the cantinière. Basically, the better you looked, the more you could get away with as far as selling crappy wine was concerned. Most vivandiers were the wives of sergeants or soldiers, and they would follow the blue-coated legions of the army to the Crimea. Another special element of the French army was their elite light infantry, another product of the war in Algeria. The Zouaves had originally been Algerian recruits meant to fight in the mountains and rough terrain of North Africa. By the 1850s, the Zouaves were mostly French nationals, not Algerian natives, but they were still mostly veterans of multiple campaigns. The Zouaves were famous for their colorful, distinctive uniforms, which consisted of a short jacket, baggy trousers, and a fez, and also their theatrical behavior. These guys are just, they're off the chain. But almost every Zouave was an elite in behavior, not just in name. Their tactics were great. They were the best skirmishers. They were the best shots. They were just the best light infantry in Europe. The French generals in the Crimea were also Algeria veterans. Their commander was Marshal Jacques Leroy de Saint-Arnaud. He was decent enough, but Napoleon III's grounds for choosing him were purely political. Saint-Arnaud had been the only French general to actively support Napoleon's seizure of power. Problem was that Saint-Arnaud was dying of stomach cancer. Yeah, so instead of like chemotherapy or bed rest, he gets a very stressful job in one of the toughest climates in the world. Get better soon! Saint-Arnaud is not long for this world, guys. Don't get too attached. He's not going to be around for much longer than the first part of the next episode. Saint-Arnaud's subordinates had also been chosen for their political loyalty, with one exception, General Pierre Bosquet, a diehard Republican who was not a fan of the new regime. But the 44-year-old Bosquet was a fighting general, a light infantry expert who had distinguished himself in Algeria. Bosquet was the best Allied General of the Crimean War by a long shot. But the other two division commanders were political appointees. francois Conrobert and the Emperor's cousin, Prince Napoleon. Bonapartes, think of a new name for your children challenge. Impossible. The French army reflected its politics. Napoleon III chose his men for their loyalty, not their ability. Hashtag just things. So the French army was a reflection of their society. Relatively egalitarian, professional, and political, the Army of Empire. It was the best organized and most experienced of all the Crimean armies. This was in sharp contrast to their ally. The British Army of the Crimea was like a ship in a bottle, preserved almost perfectly at their moment of triumph, when the Duke of Wellington defeated Napoleon at Waterloo in 1815. The duke himself had been the army's commander-in-chief until 1852, that is, two years ago, and he was unwilling to make any but the most minor changes to his beloved army. Despite being the birthplace of the modern world, the British army was still frozen in the romantic glory of Waterloo 40 years later. It was an army of gentlemen. The embodiment of this frozen army was Fitzroy Somerset, Lord Raglan. Raglan had been Wellington's military secretary throughout all of his campaigns and had lost his right arm at Waterloo. He was Wellington's protege, his golden boy, and this was the main reason Raglan was selected to command the British army in the Crimea. But Raglan is honestly one of the worst commanders I have talked about in this whole podcast. And this is a podcast that's featured the Earl of Mar and Gyun, So I will warn you, I have strong feelings about Raglan, and they are going to come out throughout this series. Raglan was absent-minded, careless, indecisive. Still having his Waterloo flashbacks, he tended to refer to the enemy as the French, getting him a lot of side-eye from his allies. And in his 50 years of service, Raglan had never held a command position. He had no experience leading troops. He had just carried out Wellington's decisions, never making any of his own. But Raglan's biggest flaw was that he was nice. Everyone who knew him said he was so agreeable, so charming, such a gentleman. But Raglan was too nice. He didn't shoot people out. He didn't tell them they would screwed up. That would be mean. He didn't fire them. That would be ungentlemanly. And he bent over backwards to appease his French allies and didn't confront them about anything, because that would be rude. Raglan was totally unfit to exercise authority and would barely try. If I renamed this series, it would be James Hauser hates on Lord Raglan for four weeks and Lord is he going to deserve it. Catchphrase for the entire series, guys. New catchphrase is just about to drop. Raglan, do your job. I'm going to have to use that a lot. The British army wasn't just frozen to preserve the glory of Waterloo. It was built to reinforce a class system that was under heavy strain in the industrial age. British officers were still chosen by the purchase system, where ranks up to colonel were bought rather than earned, limiting the officer corps basically to the wealthy. Like, if you have deep pockets, you have a lot of money, you can be a colonel. Professional military education was almost non existent. These guys knew nothing about their jobs, and promotions were gained by connections instead of merit five of Raglan's senior commanders were related. His first division commander was Prince George, Duke of Cambridge, the Queen's cousin, with zero military experience, and all his aides-de-camp were his nephews. British officers were mostly a bunch of spoiled rich kids who saw war as a sport, a hobby, a class preserve rather than a real career, something they did on weekends for a lark. If the officers were at the top of the social order, the soldiers were at the bottom. The British were a volunteer army, recruited from the lowest of classes, the slums of London or the Scottish Highlands or the Irish backcountry. Their pay was trash, their training was careless, and their discipline was brutal. One French Zouave officer saw the whippings of the British soldiers and said, The sight of these corporal punishments disgusted us, reminding us that the revolution abolished flogging in our army. In England, the soldier is really just a serf. He is no more than the property of the government. The British also had very little combat experience. Now, there were experienced British soldiers, but these were veterans of the wars in India or Afghanistan that the regular army looked down on as not real soldiers for some reason. There were tons of British veterans of bloody battles, but those weren't real wars, so they didn't count. Raglan refused to take any officers or units on his staff that were Indianized, believing they were unfit for a white man's war, a real war. But the biggest British problem was in their logistics and organization. In the words of Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's husband, We have no general staff or staff corps, no field commissariat, no ambulance corps, no baggage train, no corps of drivers, no corps of artisans, no practice in the combined use of the three arms, infantry, cavalry, and artillery. The undeveloped military administration of the British Army was a result of budget cuts, lack of experience, and the tendency to treat war as a gentleman's hobby. The British logistic, medical, and transport services would be an absolute disaster during the Crimean War. I'm barely scratching the surface on this stuff. We're going to get way into it, especially in the fourth part of this series. And the British, as we've mentioned, traveled to the Crimea with thousands of women in tow. But these women were separated by class as well. The enlisted wives, women like Nell Butler and Elizabeth Evans, both of whom will pop up in this series, suffered terribly. Then there was Fanny Duberley, wife of an officer in the 8th Hussars of the Light Brigade. Fanny had come to the Crimea for the adventure, and she would rub shoulders with generals and officers throughout the campaign. We'll see the war through her eyes, too. She's an amazing eyewitness for some of this stuff. Kind of an amazing woman. So the British Army was a reflection of its society. Despite being a modern, industrialized country, the British society was conservative and nostalgic, stuck in the romantic glories of the past, and committed to preserving the social order. But Raglan and his commanders would find out the hard way that the world had changed. The Russians would find out even harder. The Russian army gave the impression of an enormous green-coated juggernaut, but it was chained to a class system and economic order far behind the rest of Europe. Russian society was based on the peasant serf, an unfree person who lived in the lord's manor, with barely more freedom than a slave in the American South, like half a notch above a slave in the American South. The Russian army was the army of serfdom. Russia, the most autocratic regressive society in Europe, had a tsar who was determined to keep it that way. I've mentioned that Nicholas I was a military maniac. He would conduct parades and drills every waking hour he could. The soldiers had to be perfectly in step, perfectly in line, not a hair or button out of place. The Tsar was a micromanager par excellence, and would verbally assault anyone who even seemed to be a second out of line. This was more than just him being a drill sergeant wannabe. Very early in Nicholas's reign, a coup by a bunch of army officers, the Decembrist revolt had almost driven him out of power. The Decembrists convinced Nicholas that creative thinking in his officer corps was a threat to his power, best to keep his officers rigid, obedient, totally dependent on orders from the top. This resulted in an officer corps for the Russian army with zero initiative whatsoever, leading soldiers who were trained to be unthinking robots. All the creativity and independent thinking was hammered out of them. The Russian army was a drill-field army, barely combat-trained, many of its soldiers having never fired their muskets, but hot dang could they execute the cleanest about-face you've ever seen. The Russians looked back to the glory days of 1812, Napoleon's invasion of Russia and the Battle of Borodino, where their soldiers had stood unyielding against the great Western invader. The Russian army was less worried about doctrine, tactics, or professional education, and more about rigidity, stubbornness, blind obedience to orders. This fit with Tsar Nicholas's personality and the structure of Russian society. The Russian soldier, like his ancestors and descendants, was brave, clever, strong, and tough. But he was the most mistreated soldier of any European army. He was a serf, basically a slave. The Russians conscripted their soldiers en masse. They took in like 70,000 new recruits a year by force and made them serve for 20 years. A draft notice was treated like a death sentence, like the family would cry like it was a funeral as their son went off to war. The soldiers were shockingly uneducated. In one army corps of 120,000 men just before the Crimean War, only 0.2% of the men could read and write. Not 2%, 0.2%. One 18-year-old conscript who could write, still didn't know what was going on. We did not think of anything. We knew nothing. We let our commanders think for us and did what they told us. And their lot was miserable. Another of the Tsar's conscript wrote to his family near Kiev in Ukraine. Every hour we expect to die. To tell the truth, nearly all our regiment was destroyed by the Turks, but by the grace of the highest creator, I am still alive and well. I hope to return home and see you all again, but now we are in the gravest danger, and I am afraid to die. Always a great letter to get from your relative at at uh, at the war front, right? (laughs) The Russian soldier was paid dirt, treated like dirt, lived in dirt. If the British whippings shocked the French, Russian discipline was downright horrific. Officers stole money meant for soldiers' equipment and rations to piss away at the gambling table. Soldiers had to make their own uniforms and barely understood how to use their weapons. Russian tactics relied almost entirely on the mass column charging with bayonet, the only tactic suitable for such a poorly trained, poorly educated army. The ignorance of their officers, the poor education of the troops, and the sheer size of their country meant that Russian logistics downright irresponsible. (laughs) Remember how I talked about the amount of food an army needs daily? How if you break the iron hand of logistics, your army is starving? Well, what if you just don't give a crap? Congratulations, you now qualify to be a Russian general in the Crimean War. The Russian soldier was expected to live off the land, and if he failed, tough. Any major Russian offensive into a foreign country descended into starvation, frostbite, and exposure in a matter of months, and these miserable conditions made soldiers vulnerable to infection and disease. Of the 80,000 Russian soldiers who invaded the Danubian principalities in 1853, more than half died within a year, almost all from disease and starvation. Russian logistics made British logistics look good. British logistics made French look amazing. Now the Russian army was staggeringly huge, over a million men, the largest army the world had ever seen. But because Russia was both was big, poor, and repressive, most of those men were poorly equipped scattered across the country to hold down the ethnic uprising of the weak. And this huge army was a massive strain on the undeveloped Russian economy. Keeping this many men under arms meant that they weren't on the farm or in the workshops, Drafting more men than normal stood a good chance of crippling the Russian serf economy, which was constantly on the verge of poverty. So the Russian army was the army of serfdom. It was brutal, corrupt, and repressive, ruled by class and social status, the big, strong, inflexible sledgehammer of the gendarme of Europe. It was just like the country and the tsar it served. Everyone is always having a great time in Russia. So guys... All three European armies headed to the Crimea lived in the same age, with roughly the same technology level, same recent history of warfare to look back on. But they did not look, think, or behave the same way. They were a reflection of their societies. Four armies, the Army of Tanzimat, the Army of Empire, the Army of Gentlemen, and the Army of Serfdom, headed to the Crimea. And none of them, except maybe the French, were ready. The Russian withdrawal from the Danubian principalities left the Allies thinking about their next move. And as the British and French argued, neither of them even thought about asking the Ottomans who cared what they thought, their army sat at Varna, twiddling their thumbs throughout June and July and August, not doing anything. Their passivity was mocked all across Europe, including by none other than Karl Marx, who was observing and reporting on the war throughout the entire thing. There they are, eighty or 90,000 English and French soldiers at Varna, commanded by old Wellington's late military secretary, and by a marshal of France whose greatest exploits were performed in London pawn shops. There they are, the French doing nothing, and the British helping them as fast as they can. Full confession, guys. I'm not a big fan of a lot of Marx's philosophies, but he can be kind of funny sometimes. The encampment at Varna was disgusting. The weather was hot and sticky, and the British camp was literally in a marsh. Nell Butler and her husband Michael put up their tent the night they arrived, but they had set up on a massive ant hill, and the insects ate their entire sugar ration overnight. The camp was disorganized, vile. Most of the soldiers were drunk and disorderly, the latrines were overflowing, you could smell them for miles, and the corpses of animals were left to rot amongst the tents. Sounds like living in the alley behind a San Francisco Denny's. But the biggest problem was cholera, which hit the camp a few days after the armies arrived. Cholera is a highly contagious waterborne disease, which can be treated with good hygiene, which the Allies did not have. British Army wife Elizabeth Evans commented that the disease was worse surely than the battle itself, for on the field you did at any rate get the thrill and excitement of action and knew that you were fighting and suffering for your country. The cholera came from drinking the nasty water of the Danube Delta. At some points, the French were losing 60 dead a day, their bodies being wrapped in blankets and tossed in mass graves. If that wasn't bad enough, a fire burned down most of the town, including much of the supplies of both armies. Varna was a cesspool, a death trap, and the longer the armies sat, the more their morale sank. The soldiers wanted to do something, anything, fight a battle, get out of Varna. Fanny Duberly wrote, That, We are all for one good fight to see which is the better man, all for one blow struck so effectually as to crush all warlike propensities against us forever. And the Allied governments agreed. Russia had been driven out of Ottoman territory, but this was not enough. It had been six months, and their armies had barely fired a shot. The public in both Britain and France were stirred up in anxiety about the Russian menace and demanded that the Tsar be punished. And the Allies were unwilling to leave things to the status quo there had to be some way to inflict a serious blow, to destroy the threat that Tsar posed to the Ottoman Empire. So the Allies looked at the most obvious target, the place from which any future Russian aggression would come, the base of the Black Sea Fleet, the great naval base of Sevastopol. And Sevastopol sat on the tip of the Crimea. British First Lord of the Admiralty, Sir James Graham, described it this way: "On this, my heart is set. The eye tooth of the bear must be drawn. Until his fleet and naval arsenal in the Black Sea are destroyed, there is no safety for Constantinople, no security for the peace of Europe." Napoleon III agreed mainly because, as a Bonaparte, he needed a military victory to shine on his name and the capture of Sevastopol seemed to fit the bill. And guys, I'll be real with you. The Allies did not think this plan through. What capturing Sevastopol was supposed to accomplish, the difficulty, the terrain, the weather of the enemy, none of this was considered. They didn't even have maps of the Crimea. Most a lot of them didn't know where it was. This whole strategy was less the result of carefully thought out planning and more just inertia, drift, the fact that they had to do something, just go do something, which is one of the most dangerous feelings for a leader to have. They didn't have any other ideas, so this just seemed like a thing to do. They did not think it out, and it would cost everybody a whole, whole lot. So the Allies loaded their armies onto the ships at Varna, Raglan with his one arm still reliving Waterloo in his mind, sant arnaud barely able to stand, sick from stomach cancer. Some of the troops were so sick that they had to be carried. There wasn't room for the whole army, and lots of supplies were left behind, including winter uniforms and medical supplies, including the British ambulance carts that they had worked so hard to resource over the last couple months. The assumption was the capture of Sevastopol would be quick, and none of this stuff would be needed. The entire strategy relied on, hey, we're going to land in the Crimea, capture Sevastopol quickly. In and out, a week, two weeks tops, Oh, you sweet summer children. But just as the ships were about to sail, they were swarmed by an angry mob of British army wives, furious at the thought of being left to rot at Varna. And Lord Raglan was just too nice to say no. The wives, including Nell Butler, climbed aboard. On September 7th, 1854, the Allied fleet, carrying nearly 60,000 men, including about 23,000 French, 25,000 British, and 7,000 Ottoman Egyptian soldiers, sailed east, heading into the Black Sea. The ships were full to bursting, creaky, sweltering in the early autumn heat. Nell Butler, married just under a year, probably never imagined she would be out here in the Wild East, sailing with her soldier husband to a terrifying unknown land. She tried to catch fresh air on the upper decks whenever she could, as they sailed for the Crimea. On September 14th, 1854, The men and women of the Allied invasion force sighed in relief as they came within sight of the Crimean Peninsula. Cholera had been a very unwanted stowaway, and Nell Butler had done what she could to ease the suffering of its victims along the voyage. The progress of the fleet had been marked by a trail of corpses tossed overboard. The Allies chose to land at Kalameda Bay, south of Yevpatoria, located midway up the west coast of the Crimea. The plan was that the Allied armies would land quickly, march south quickly, and capture Sevastopol before the Russians knew what had hit them. Now, this was no D-Day situation. The Russians were not on the beach to stop them when the Allies landed. They didn't even realize Allies were coming. But the contrast between the two Western Allied armies was clear in how they came ashore on the Crimea. The French were super organized. They had men row out in little boats to set up colored tents and flags to designate the landing sites for each division. They moved out on their boats with guns and men and horses and carts coming off in sequence like they had rehearsed it for years. Marshal Saint-Arnaud sat up on the beach with a camp chair and a newspaper in front of his tent and sat there and watched the British make a botch of the whole thing. The British landing was a freaking clown show an embarrassment. Raglan had made no plans. Raglan, do your job. They waited too long to land, allowing the weather to worsen and the rolling waves to turn everything into a fiasco. The British horses, guns, and wagons struggled in the churning surf of the Black Sea, coming ashore drenched and exhausted. It took the French two days to disembark there and the Ottoman armies. It took the British five. The redcoats hadn't been issued tents, and they slept under ragged blankets under sheets of driving rain during the unloading. Santarno waited for the British to finish getting off their freaking boats, shaking his head. Freaking amateur owl over here, man. I have stomach cancer, and I'm ready. What's your excuse? The British women were mostly forced to remain on the boats. Elizabeth Evans managed to bully her way ashore, but poor Nell Butler and Fanny Duberly had to stay behind. Nell grabbed a spyglass to catch one last sight of her Michael in the swarm of men, but she wasn't able to spot him before she was shoved below. Stranded on this vessel on a strange sea near a strange land, she waited for news of her new husband. On September 19th, the 60,000 men of the Allied army began their 28-mile march to Sevastopol. Their formation was enormous, stretching over miles. The French in their blue coats marched closest to the sea, backed up by the Ottoman troops from Egypt. The British marched inland in their pompous red uniforms, tight and constricting in the terrible heat. The Crimea was barren, rocky, covered in shrubs and tall grass with little water. As they marched, men fell out from exhaustion, heat stroke, and hunger, and cholera, which is still a problem. When they reached a river, they lost all discipline and collapsed into the brackish water, drinking it with their hands. That afternoon, a brigade of Russian Cossack cavalry suddenly appeared, fired a few shots, and wheeled away. They were spotted by the British cavalry of the Light Brigade, who wanted to chase the Cossacks down, but were held back by Lord Raglan. Now, we're not there yet, guys. We're not at the charge yet. The Light Brigade was humiliated that their chance for glory had been denied. When would they get their chance to go storming into glory and attack the enemy? Relax, guys. You're going to get your chance in a month, and you're going to regret it. Finally, the Allies came within sight of their enemy. Three miles to the south was a Russian army under the command of Prince Alexander Menshikov. You may remember him as the angry Russian diplomat who had gotten his manhood shot off by the Turks, Well, here the Nadless wonder was, and he had 35,000 men and 100 guns deployed on the high ground overlooking the Alma River. The Russians had not expected the Allies to invade the Crimea, mainly because doing so this late in the year with winter this close was a really stupid idea. And he was right, like I said, invading the Crimea was a bad idea. So Menshikov dug in on the imposing Alma Heights, with sheer cliffs near the sea to the west, and a series of high ridges to the east. Menshikov considered the high western cliffs to be impassable, like the cliffs facing the French army, like, they're not, nobody can climb that. So he positioned the bulk of his forces to the east, straddling the road to Sevastopol, atop Telegraph Hill and Kurgan Hill. There were several fortified positions on top of these hills, especially the Great Redoubt, overlooking the road to Sevastopol. High ground behind a water obstacle, flanked by cliffs and the sea, with good fortifications. The Russians had a very strong defensive position. Menshikov was so confident of victory, despite being outnumbered by almost two to one, that he had invited a number of Russian ladies to watch the battle, and they gathered around his tent with their parasols and bonnets where they could clearly see the enemy below. The Allies decided to wait out the night and attack the Russians the next day, September 20th. The stage was set for the Crimea's first great battle. The Allies determined to break through to Sevastopol. The Russians determined to stop them. The four armies spent the night within sight of each other, cleaning their guns, cooking dinner, making tea, writing letters, singing songs in English, Gaelic, French, Turkish, Arabic, Russian, and Ukrainian. They prayed to the Protestant God, the Catholic God, the Orthodox God, or Allah. They boasted of their courage, hid their fear, and dreamed of getting back to their families. And as the sun went down, they listened to the singing from the other side. September 20th, 1854, dawned bright and clear. The four armies shook themselves awake, ate breakfast, and formed ranks— The Allied troops assembled on the plains north of the Alma, facing the Russians on the heights to the south. Both sides steeled themselves for the storm. A British soldier remembered, Comrades looked at each other and turned white. If a pin fell from the heavens, you could hear it. One French officer bellowed to his men, by thunder, are we Frenchmen or not? The 22nd will earn distinction for itself today, or you are all scoundrels. Line up to the right. The Russians carried Orthodox icons in front of their men to raise their spirits, and one Russian officer told his men, We will not disgrace our Russian land. We will drive back the enemy and please our good father, Batyushka the Tsar. The Ottoman soldiers, after finishing their morning prayers facing Mecca, rolled up their mats and prepared for battle. The Allies had a plan, or at least one of them did. Marshal Saint-Arnaud took a look at the Russian position and decided that a frontal assault would be dumb. So he laid out his plan to Raglan. Hey, look, Raglan. The British on the left will attack the Russian right flank. The French on the right will attack the Russian left flank near the cliffs of the Alma. We're not going to go straight up the center. We're going to attack the flanks. If we attack together, we can overwhelm Menshikov's defenses. Raglan just said the French could rely on the cooperation of the British army. This left saint with the impression, understandably, that Raglan would follow the plan. But, well, Raglan had no intention of doing that. But he couldn't say that. That would be mean. So the Allies went to battle on the Alma with one side thinking they had a plan and the other side with no plan. Good teamwork guys. Raglan, do your job. At around noon, the Allied armies began their march south towards the Alma. The Russian cannons began to roar from the great masses to the south, sending shells and balls whistling across the river into their enemies. But as they approached the heights, Raglan decided, hey, Santarno's plan sucks. So instead of attacking simultaneously with his allies, Raglan decided to let the French break through the enemies, and only then would the British attack. Why he decided to do this, I have no idea, it blows my mind, but Raglan ordered his troops to halt and lie down in the open fields below the heights of Alma. They would lie there for an hour and a half under constant fire from the Russian artillery while Raglan tried to make up his mind. Do your job. The French continued their advance. General Pierre Bosquet's 2nd Division was on the far right, facing the sheer cliffs overlooking the Alma. And as they drew closer, Bosquet realized that those cliffs were virtually undefended. General Menshikov believed that the cliffs were impossible to climb, so he hadn't put any troops or guns up there. But the French vanguard was a regiment of the Zouaves, the expert mountain fighters, the best light infantry in Europe. General Bosque told them to go out and do what they did best. The Zuavs dropped their packs and swam across the river in their blue and red and yellow uniforms like a bunch of angry flowers. Then they clambered up the cliffs like acrobats, making it look easy. Within minutes, they were darting back and forth on top of the Alma Heights, sniping at the Russian positions, doing dances on top of the cliffs to taunt their enemies. challenge them to a dance battle, maybe? I don't know, but the Russians did not bite. Bosque sent more men to reinforce them, and blue-coated infantry rushed up the paths the zouaves had cleared. They even managed to start pulling some light artillery up the supposedly unclimbable cliffs. The agility, combat experience, and leadership of the French had allowed them to flank the Russian position. This, This maneuver on its own pretty much decided the Battle of the Alma. When General Menshikov heard the news, he panicked. The nadless wonder spent the rest of the battle riding around like a chicken with his head cut off. He just lost his head in the crisis. Menshikov sent the Taratensky regiment and some artillery west to try and drive these lunatics off the cliffs. The artillery fire almost panicked the Zouaves. This is not something they had encountered in Algeria. They were confused. But then General Bosque came storming up the cliff on horseback, riding back and forth under fire and waving his sword, rallying his men. See what good leadership does? The French held, and rifle fire chewed into the enormous Russian infantry columns. The Russian commander on the left, General Kiryakov, was incredibly incompetent a notorious alcoholic. Waving around an open bottle of champagne, he accidentally ordered the Minsk regiment to shoot at the Kiev Hussars, committing fratricide, and another Russian officer had to be restrained from using his sword on the drunken general, Gee, it's almost like getting blitzed in the middle of a battle and giving orders is BAD! Bosquet's men held off the Russian counter-attack. But the rest of the French army was running into trouble. To Bosquet's left, the divisions of General Conrobert and Prince Napoleon splashed across the shallow riverbed in heavy skirmish lines, laying down fire with their rifles and creeping forward towards Telegraph Hill. But these divisions came under a murderous fire from the Russians on the heights. The French sent a messenger to the British saying, Dude, what are you doing over there? Come help us. Take some of this pressure off. They sent Raglan message after message, begging him to freaking do something, please. Raglan said, after an hour and a half. Okay, the army will advance. The Light Infantry Division and the 2nd Division up front. 1st Division in support. That was it. That was the order. Advance where? To do what? Do we attack? Where do you want us to go? No answer. Raglan gave his division and brigade commanders no further guidance, only the order to launch a frontal attack, uphill, across a water obstacle, the exact thing that saint had wanted to avoid. The British infantry moved out, calmly, officers at their head, dressed in lines two ranks deep, the exact same formation they had used at Waterloo 40 years ago. The Russians had lit a nearby village on fire, and soon the bright autumn day was covered in smoke. The Redcoats stared in foreboding and horror as they approached the heights of the Alma, dotted with red flashes from Russian guns. As the lines advanced through the burning village and abandoned vineyards, they were preceded by skirmishers, the British Rifle Brigade, in their bottle-green uniforms. Men fell from cannon and sniper fire. General Brown of the Light Division noted that, The most striking thing to me was the silent way in which death did its work. No sight or sound betrayed the cause. A man dropped, rolled over, or fell out of ranks into the dust. The Redcoats reached the Alma River. And everything fell apart. The inexperienced officers had no idea what to do next. War was no longer just a hobby. Some men refused to go into the water because they couldn't swim. Some were pulled away by the current. Some, weakened by cholera, diarrhea, or heat stroke, sank without a sound. Some were shot to pieces. But most held their weapons and ammo above their heads and waded across in chest-high water. Those who did reach the far bank huddled in the mud below the embankment, anywhere they could escape from the Russian fire. Dozens of red-coated bodies floated in the murky waters of the Alma. The glorious advance of the Queen's men had turned into a soaked, frightened mob, unable to go forward. The battle was at a critical moment. If the Russians had attacked right then, they might have won the battle. The British and French were both pinned along the Alma at the base of the heights. But the Russian high command was paralyzed. Menshikov was panicking, most generals were drunk, and no junior officer had been trained to think for himself. The Russian reserves sat immobile, hamstrung by a lack of initiative, or went charging into battle in their tight, inflexible columns, flashing the bayonet. One Russian soldier recalled, Nobody gave any direction what to do. During the five hours that the battle went on, we neither saw nor heard of our general or brigadier or colonel. We did not receive any orders from them either to advance or to retire. And when we retired, nobody knew whether we ought to go to the right or left. The British, for all their faults, did have some initiative. General William Codrington of the Light Division's 1st Brigade rode on his gray horse up the muddy riverbank, waving his sword, trying to get the men to move. Fix bayonets! Get up the bank and advance to the attack! A mob of confused, eager soldiers surged up the rocky hills into the Russian positions. 500 meters away sat the main Russian strongpoint, the Great Redoubt. The light division swarmed over the parapet, shooting and stabbing at point-blank range. The Russians fell back stubbornly, dragging their guns with them. The Light Division had taken the Great Redoubt, but now they were being hammered by musket and artillery fire from every side, and no reinforcements were coming. The reason was Raglan's vague order that just said advance, but not how, where, or why. The First and Second Divisions were still stuck on the other side of the Alma, waiting for orders from Raglan, who had vanished. So where the hell was Raglan? Well, he had made the interesting decision to ride up a hill across the river where he could see better the old one-armed general dressed in a frock coat and top hat rode past confused russian soldiers ignoring the danger he was in raglan called for some artillery pieces to be dragged up where they could fire on the enemy it was a good spot for artillery yeah but that wasn't the problem the problem was that this was not raglan's job he was doing the job of a staff officer not the job of a commander behind the lines controlling the movement of his troops. While he was reliving his Waterloo flashbacks, his army was running around headless, its men bleeding and dying on the banks of the Alma. General George DeLacy Evans of the 2nd Division finally got fed up and convinced Prince George's 1st Division to advance with him. Their units began to cross the Alma, but it was too late. Four Russian battalions of the Vladimirsky Regiment, formed up in their tight battering ram columns, came charging like a freight train into the Great Redoubt. They swarmed the light division with an hurrah, and the British, outnumbered four to one, sprinted back the way they had come towards the Alma River. The fleeing men of the Light Division were in such a panic that they collided head-on with one of the 1st Division's regiments, the Scots Fusilier Guards, the same unit that Queen Victoria had admired in London eight months ago. This sudden wave of their panicking comrades threw the Fusiliers into disorder and chaos, sending them fleeing as well. One of their officers was 23-year-old ensign Hugh Annesley. We had got within 30 or 40 yards of the entrenchment when a musket ball hit me full on in the mouth, and I thought it was all over for me. I turned round and ran as fast as I could down the hill to get to the river. The balls were coming through us now even hotter than ever, and I felt sure that I should never get away. Halfway down, I stumbled and fell. I lost my sword and bearskin here. At last, I reached the riverbank and got under shelter. There were crowds of soldiers here. Annersley's wound was ghastly. He had lost 23 teeth and most of his tongue. The Russians pursued the Light Division, victory in their sights. They homed in on the last two battalions of the Guards Brigade, the Coldstream and Grenadier Guards, the Queen's Guards, the ones who guard Buckingham Palace to this day. The British and Russians were using the exact same tactics their ancestors had used. The Russians in their great green columns from Borodino. The British guards in their thin, 2 rank deep lines from Waterloo. Nothing had changed, except the weapons of the British guards held in their hands. The Industrial Revolution had arrived on the Alma. The British foot soldier had carried virtually the same weapon since the 1720s, the smoothbore flintlock musket. They carried it at Culloden, Bunker Hill, Waterloo, Afghanistan. And the big problem with this weapon was its poor accuracy and limited range of only about 100 yards. There were some very primitive rifles which could fire a more accurate round at longer range, but these required precise threading in the barrel, which made the weapon much harder to manufacture and to reload. It just wasn't feasible for most of your troops to carry rifles. But the Industrial Revolution allowed for new machine tools, mass production, manufacturing processes. And in the 1840s, a Frenchman named Claude Meunier perfected the first mass production rifled musket. He created a conical round with a hollow base, which could slide easily down the barrel, but when the cartridge was ignited, the base expanded, allowing the rifling to take effect and greatly increasing accuracy and range to almost 600 yards. The minier rifle was the first big advance in infantry firearms in a century and a half, and they were wielded by most Allied units on the Alma. The Russians would never equip most of their troops with the minier during the Crimean War. These were the products of an industrialized economy like the British or the French, not a peasant economy like the Russian. The the British had only been given their new minier rifles a few months ago and didn't realize just what they had. But when the Coldstream and Grenadier guards leveled their newfangled minier rifles, they delivered a volley of 2,000 rounds across 400 yards, quadruple the range of the old musket. It was the most accurate and deadly volume of small-arms fire to that point in history. One volley of 57 caliber rounds after another ripped into the Russian columns. They faltered, confused, overwhelmed by the sheer amount of fire, almost the weight of 14 machine guns at a time. And then, bagpipes sounded over the hills of the Crimea. To the left of the guards came the other brigade of the 1st Division, the Highland Brigade. The 42nd Black Watch, the 79th Camerons, and the 93rd Sutherlands. Their commander was, you know what, guess. If you heard the Jacobite Wars, guess. He's a Highland general. What's his last name? What do you think it is? Ding, ding, ding. It was Campbell. Another Campbell. General Colin Campbell, one of the best generals in the British Army, turned to his tartaned Highlanders and told them Don't be in a hurry about firing. Your officers will tell you when to do so. Be steady. Keep silent. Fire low. The Scots fired their menier rifles and surged forward with the bayonet over the wail of their pipes, and the Russians fell back in disarray. The 1st Division moved forward en masse, and the 2nd came up to join them, including the 95th Derby Shears, Private Michael Butler's regiment. They poured into the Great Redoubt, finally shattering the Russian resistance. The battered British infantry panted, exhausted, as their officers raised the Union Jack over the heights of Alma. Intermingled dead in red and green lay all around them. With the British and French cracking the Russian center, and Bosque zouaves flanking them from the left, the Russian infantry began to waver, Then the Ottomans came up from behind, following Bosque's path up the cliff, the Egyptian soldiers of Suleiman Pasha moving towards the Russian line of retreat. This was the last straw. All along the line, Russian soldiers lost their nerve, and soon the whole Russian army was disintegrating and racing south. They left behind Prince Prince Menshikov's carriage, which the Zouaves captured, and they found his uniforms, his mail, and a decent stash of French pornography and some lingerie. Not sure what the Nadless Wonder planned to do with any of that. A man can dream, can't he? Lord Raglan wanted to pursue immediately, but General SantArnaud was less enthusiastic. His decision not to pursue the retreating Russians has been criticized ever since, but the Frenchman had a point. Both armies were in absolute chaos, exhausted, strung out, with pieces of units scattered across the battlefield. SantArnaud said basically, "A win is a win. Let's not push our luck." It was 4.30 p.m., and the Battle of the Alma was over. 10,000 casualties littered the hills and riverbanks of the Alma. The Russians had suffered the most, around 6,000, and the British and French had each suffered around 2,000 apiece, the Ottomans 500. The army's women were shocked by the carnage. Elizabeth Evans, years later, remembered what she saw. Even now, I see just as clearly as I beheld it then, a brave officer, lying where he had fallen, looking with wild eyes towards the heights of Alma. They were big, merry, blue eyes, the most beautiful, I think, that I ever saw. One Russian soldier remembered trying to pick up as many of the wounded as he could. One man could hardly drag himself along. He was without arms and his belly was shot through. Another had his leg blown off and his jaw smashed with his tongue torn out. Only the expression on his face pleaded for a mouthful of water. The super smart British had left all their medical gear and ambulances back in Varna. I guess they figured they wouldn't need it. Raglan, do your job. Because they needed it now. Many, many of the wounded on all sides died from the lack of care. Field surgery had to be conducted on a wooden door taken from a nearby house. The ordeal of the wounded soldiers on the Alma was disgraceful, downright criminal, the result of their leader's incompetence. And it would only get worse. Back on the boats at Yefpatoria, Nell Butler had been waiting for news of her husband. She still hadn't heard anything, and none of the army wives had when the casualties of the Alma arrived to be loaded onto the ships. She remembered one of the sailors yelling, Just send up the live ones, you fool. There were three dead in the last batch. Nell asked for news of her husband. Was he alive? Was he hurt? Was he a prisoner? But no one knew, and no one cared. The young army wife stared to the south, hoping against hope that Michael was all right, as the sun rose the next morning over the Crimea. Nell Butler's story is not over. The four armies on the Alma had fought the first battle between European powers since Waterloo. So how did they do? What was their grade? The Ottomans? Not as weak as they seemed. The French? Experienced, cohesive, flexible, and fearless, but led by political generals for the most part. The British, courageous and plucky, but with obvious command and organization problems. And the Russians, brave but inflexible, unable to adapt to the new styles of warfare, and underarmed, Because the Western Allies had been armed with the tools of industrialized societies against a nation that functioned on peasant agriculture. The armies reflected the countries they served, on a deeper level than anyone realized. But one battle does not decide a war. If the Allies thought this thing would be easy, they had another thing coming. Their failure to follow up the victory at the Alma would end up being a fatal mistake. The Alma wasn't the beginning of the end. It was the end of the beginning. On September 23rd, 1854... Four days after the bloodletting at the Alma, the Allied army looked south. There, miles away, gleaming in the autumn sun, sat the beautiful white buildings of Sevastopol. Its narrow streets and copper church domes thronged with our activity as citizens and soldiers and sailors prepared for the attack that was sure to come. The British, French, and Ottomans had come within sight of their objective. The naval dockyards of Sevastopol housed the Black Sea Fleet, the force that had committed the massacre at Sinope. So long as Sevastopol stood, the Russian bear would not be declawed. The city had to fall. The Allies assumed the capture of Sevastopol would take a few days. They were so, so wrong. In Sevastopol and its surroundings— over 200,000 men and women from the four armies of the Alma were doomed to die. Guys, get used to this scene. Get used to the rugged hills of the Crimea, the barren rocky ridges and valleys on the shores of the Black Sea. Get used to the buildings, walls, and shadows of Sevastopol. We're going to be here for a very, very long time. Next week... We will continue the story of the Crimean War. We're going to see the Allies open the long, agonizing siege of Sevastopol and see the Russians rally to defend the city. But the focus will be the two truly legendary battles of the Crimea, the great clashes at Balaklava and Inkerman, including, drumroll please, finally, the Charge of the Light Brigade, which many of you might be the only thing you know about this war. Will the Allies take Sevastopol before the Russian winter arrives? Will the Russians rescue the city? Will Lord Raglan screw everything up? One of those is true. I'll let you guess which. Anyway, thanks so, so much for listening today. I hope you guys really enjoyed today's episode as much as I enjoyed making it. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it, but please do not give them cholera. If you don't, tell your enemies, but please do not cut their throats when they beg for mercy, unless you're in the Balkans, in which case I guess go nuts. If you want to check my sources, my commentary, and maps, including a battle map of the Alma, it's all on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or just drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. I want to hear what you think about the Crimean War, even as we continue on through it. Thanks once more. See you same place, same time next week for Crimea Part 3, The Jaws of Death. Only here on Unknown Soldiers.